0: Good morning. It's great to be here with you. This is the last installment on uh, the series we're in about Christian suffering, as Pastor Mark mentioned. I'm realized that doing a three-week series means I'm the suffering guy. So as I see people in the lobby, like Matt Howard, he's like, "Oh, again, (laughs) more suffering." I won't preach on suffering the other times I'm preaching upcoming, but um, we are going through this series, and we're trying to end this series even here uh, with final thoughts on Christian suffering, and we have some notes for you to follow along. But as a part of the series, uh, we first talked about the weight of Christian suffering and the purpose of Christian suffering, and last week we talked about the stewardship Of Christian suffering and if you're keeping along there's three left all of which are called today so we're going to move quick today the treasures of Christian suffering the partnership in Christian suffering and lastly the end of Christian suffering when I was about eight years old in Marlton New Jersey I was bored and I went outside of came in the Cambridge Park House 21 Concord Drive and uh, I went out with a shovel that was just like this one. Probably having to do weeding because my parents just love making their children weed. And, so, and not wanting to weed because their children hated to weed. But I was out there with this shovel and thinking, I'm bored, I have a shovel. And so being the ever creative type, I thought, I'm going to try to shove this shovel as far into this Marlton soil as I possibly can. And I didn't really, couldn't really get it in because this is not a spade which cuts in deeper when you like step on it. So this particular shovel, I thought I could get the furthest in by lifting up the shovel and smashing it down. And I did it, but this particular shovel wasn't as sharp as I wanted it to be. And I was rather discouraged, my eight-year-old self, that I couldn't put the shovel as far into the dirt as I wanted. And I remember thinking, I am gonna do it one more time. And I'm gonna do it as hard as I can. I literally had this thought. And so I lifted up the shovel. One detail I haven't mentioned is I was barefoot at the time. Yep, it's exactly going there. And I lifted up the shovel, came right down, bam! Right on the nail of my big toe. And I didn't know what happened. And I'm like, I thought nothing happened. And then I grabbed my foot and then the blood started leaking through a new crack in my big toenail. And then I started, you know, handling like a man <laughs> or screaming like a small child, well, however you want to interpret that. My fear um, with what we're doing and suffering as I enter, come to the pulpit each week, is that I'm the shovel and you're the big toe. And I realize that this is asking you to go through a lot, and I'm very thankful for the chance to go through the text that we've gone through and to finish up this week. We're going to be in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. It's two different stories of a woman named Hagar, a single mom named Hagar. What we're going to do is go through the stories, and then we're going to rock it through the remaining principles as we look at this story. Hagar is, is, was a servant of Sarai and Abram. They were going to be called Abraham and Sarah, Sarah. And we'll just call them that for now, even as we go through the stories, even though in Genesis 16, they didn't technically get that name yet. But what happened was Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was given a promise. And the promise was, through you, all nations will be blessed. And we know that from the seed of Abraham ultimately came This, uh, the the coming of Christ, all nations, all these promises were given for major promises given through the era of Abraham, but Abraham and Sarah realized we, this is not happening and it didn't happen after a few months after getting the promise, they weren't able to have a child, Then, then wasn't able to happen after a few years and then decades went by and God did not come through on the promise that he made. And those days and months and years and decades began to add up. And eventually, Sarah and Abraham got to talking that if God is not going to come through on his word, perhaps we will have to find another way. And Sarah said, well, I do have a servant. Her name is Hagar. As you know, Abraham, why don't you take her or have a child with her? And so at least through your line, then we can have a child, an incredibly painful decision for Sarah, which would ultimately become an incredibly abusive decision for Hagar. The trust muscles that we see Abraham and Sarah wrestle with throughout Genesis were were developing, but they weren't quite there yet to believe that Sarah could have a child. So what happens is Abraham and Hagar have a child And Hagar now is with child and and, and is becoming a major part of the story, becoming the one through which the line will continue. And the other people, because they travel with a lot of people, Abraham and Sarah had a a lot of people with them. They were looking and seeing towards, how is she feeling? What's going on today? Did Did the new line kick in your stomach did this new line of descendants that is going to start with this child and hagar who was a a servant girl is now thrust to center stage but sarah was having trouble backing up from the mic it was difficult for her to realize that her part was becoming less in the story and eventually sarah deals so harshly with hagar that Hagar runs away and runs away not to someone, runs away not to somewhere, but just runs away and ends up in the wilderness. Says this in Genesis 16, Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar and she fled from her the angel of the Lord, and we talked about this like a month and a half ago, so I'm sure you all remember. The angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, is actually a Christophany. It is actually a coming of Christ in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of theological reasons that we looked into of why this phrase, the angel of the Lord, was a particular manifestation of Jesus himself coming in the Old Testament. So Jesus comes to her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur. And then this happens. The, uh, the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to you in your affliction. She's like, okay, I got that. So she called on the name of the Lord and God spoke that he would fulfill and look after her and eventually says, she responds with this statement. So she called the name of the Lord again, Christ himself who spoke to her you are a God of seeing. Anybody know the Hebrew word for that? El Roy. You are the God of seeing because you have seen me. What's interesting is this is now not the God of Abraham and Sarah, right? Even further descendants would say, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be by identification point, but not for Hagar. Hagar was running from all of that God thing out into the wilderness. She did not run to God. God ran to her. And now this God did not just become an idea put on her by Abraham and Sarah. This was the God who saw her. The story continues. And after Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, uh, who is now the heir to the new nation, the child begins to grow. And, and, and now um, What happens with Abraham and Sarah is that now Sarah gets pregnant because God was going to fulfill his promise all along, because God doesn't promise something that he doesn't fulfill. And so now Sarah is pregnant with the rightful heir to the nation as promised by God. Well, that does not mean good things for Hagar and Ishmael. And this single mom who has this child, who everyone thought would be the center of the story. Now Sarah goes to Abraham again and eventually has her removed, and Abraham gives her a donkey, a skin of water and a piece of bread. for her and the child it says this: "When the water in, in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice. And in a sound only a mother could know, she wept. Not even able to see her child die of starvation. But God does not quit on Hagar like his people did. He shows himself again, and the text continues. Sorry, I have the clicker, so like I get happy with the clicker, but I don't think I put the text in there. It says, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And the story goes on of how God provides and gives provision and looks after Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and God is the God, if you hear in the text, he is the God who sees the Elroy, and he's the God who hears the child crying, the God who sees and the God who hears in the midst of suffering. Pray with me this morning. Lord, I think of the, Song the worship team led us this morning. There will be a day when the burdens of this life will be no more. It's a lot of burdens represented in this room. We thank you that there's an end. We give you ourself this morning and pray for wisdom. We thank you that. The story of suffering isn't just bad news, and what we can relax a little bit into today is some of the joy and treasures that are found in the dark. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. So, some treasures found in Christian suffering. We're going to go through nine points this morning, okay? So, we're going to be rifling through. Well, I intended to do shorter, but based upon like some of, some of the uh, responses and conversations had, just wanted to add a few in there about how to partner with people who suffer, because so many of you um, are doing that right now. So, the uh, first thing about the treasures of Christian suffering is, is, um, is, is this statement, is found in this statement in Isaiah 45.3, I will give you the treasures of darkness. The hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Number 12, because we're doing this in a full list of 20, what you're starting with today is number 12, is he is the primary treasure of Christian suffering. The, their, their suffering is not unique to Christianity, Suffering is, not, is something that's not during this time or just Bible times. Suffering is a universal human experience. The difference between Christian suffering and just normal suffering is not the suffering, it's the Christian part. And, and the part that's unique and, and the, the part that's the primary treasure of Christian suffering is Christ himself. I love what God did with, with Hagar, right? So Hagar is there and, and, and it doesn't just, you, she's not just given a well, although she would be given a well where she could get water. She wasn't just given more bread or, or, travel, or a passing by companion to relieve her. Who comes? Who comes to so this single mom who's now so little, a part of the story of the rest of the Bible? Jesus himself. Jesus himself comes to this woman. She needs more than just provision. She needed more than just a bailout of an impossibly difficult situation. Hagar needed a God who sees. She needed a God who hears. And for the rest of Hagar's life, for whatever she faced, she knew she faced it with one who saw and heard her needs. Uh, J.I. Packer says this Communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. Union with God is literally the definition of what it means to be a Christian. So, seasons of blessing and seasons of suffering are all serving the same purpose, serving to unite us, to companion us with this God. He is the primary treasure of Christian suffering. Second, second treasure, another treasure of, of Christian suffering is the freedom from the illusion of control. Hagar is whipped around in this story between chapters. She is promoted, she is greatly demoted, and she's eventually abandoned. She is all of these things happening to her where she feels powerless and is in a powerless position. That's a dreadful spot to be. There's no formula to predict the future. God's never done this with a nation. All the things being told to her can't be like, oh, I remember that story of so-and-so. This is totally unheard of. Her life is whipped around and now she and her child are in an impossible situation. So so what does she gain from that? Not control, but she gains an incredible gift. The gift that she is free from the illusion of control that the rest of us pretend like we have. All of us, no matter what your profession or what you're doing, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a preacher, a plumber, an engineer, a nutritionist, we're used to setting up systems. It's one of the remarkable things about being a person. We we, we can set up systems and rhythms and, and within that, there is some sense of imago de God's image control, right? If you do A, you get B. If you do B, then you do C. And you get C and D. And then eventually you'll get through. But suffering has this way of blowing up that alphabet. Suffering has the, this way of, of saying, hey, you know what? I'm trying to do the right things at the right time, but I'm not always getting the thing I thought I would get. C.S. Lewis says this. God has been trying to experiment. God has not been trying to experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. And as he talked about in the problem of pain, he also says this, the creature's illusion of sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. No one feels good when their house comes crushing down. When their image of what life should or could be gets destroyed or damaged but those who sit in some of the rubble know they need a foundation that is someone bigger than themselves. Being freed from the illusion of control is terrifying and it's a gift. Third thing, just want to mention in Trever- Treasures an, aver- an aversion to depersonalized religion. That might be the most big words I've ever tried to put in a sentence right there. Hagar is run over by the machine, right? This whole idea and this whole movement that we have in Genesis 12 that will take us right to the manger. This whole promise that's been made, and this is a beautiful promise full of incredible fulfillment and and full of incredible stories of redemption. But thanks to Abraham and Sarah, it it did not start out that way for Hagar. That beautiful uh, movement of God through the nation of Israel begins by running over this woman. It begins by one of the most textbook examples of spiritual abuse that we have in all of Christianity. And when Christ himself comes to her, it, the, the language that she uses is different than many people will use in the story. It's not depersonalized language. It's actually a unique name that she gives. She is entitling and seeing senses of God, the sight and the sound that she will be the first to chronicle. Christ for her was not a banner to be raised, a story to be told, a cause to be won. He wasn't a brand, and since forever, we have been trying to make Jesus about a cause we think should be won. And, and what we, what people did with Jesus, what we still do with Jesus is, is say, you know what, Jesus must be on this side of the argument, because I actually heard someone, they were having a political argument, and they said, you know what, if Jesus were here, he would do this. You're like, well, that's a trump card right there. You know what I mean? Like, that's can't argue with that one if you have Jesus on your side, but that's what we do, right? We can argue, you know what? He would do this, but what are we really about? We're probably much more about our argument than we are about the living person of Jesus. Jesus must be on this side of this movement. Why? Because what I really care about is this movement Jesus must be cornered into blessing my church or my nation. Why? Because I really care about my church and my nation. We can depersonalize Christ. And it marked so much of Jesus' ministry. People were like, hey, it's cool you did that miracle for that one guy over there. What are you going to do with Rome? Rome. Hey, it's really cool you let the little kids come to you and you bless them. That's a nice story. But let's get some important things done for the whole nation here. We're about to enter into election cycle, and it's going to be super fun. We're all looking forward to it. You know, it's going to be easy. It's us to be like, you know, Jesus is on this political party side. And, 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 and if the Randerson person gets into office and does the wrong thing, boom, everything's destroyed, all down it. We have all said since for like, I've heard this for every election in a million years, well, I'm just gonna go to Canada. You know, like that's what everyone says and then they're not in Canada. Why? But we have this thing of like, oh, if the wrong things happen, it all falls apart. And we can talk more about America than what Jesus is doing in our own lives. Right? We're going through different seasons as a church We want to know what, okay, well, Jesus wants this, or Jesus wants that, and we, we can get all wrapped in, but now we're more talking about church than we are about him. We can be so preoccupied with what the church in America, what the church universal, what the church in South Jersey should do and be, and focus less about what Jesus himself is doing and being in me a general cause movement or organization is not enough for the one who suffers we need more than an army general or a celebrity we need direct contact with contact with Christ himself we need him to be personally involved in our lives A depersonalized religion says that, well, Jesus is heading up this thing and I'm gonna line up underneath him. The one who suffer knows, my God, I need you now. Be whoever you actually are. Suffering teaches us that eternal life is about knowing him and letting him be himself. 15. Resiliency. Suffering brings us resiliency, produces resiliency that comes one revolution at a time. The next chapter is Genesis 22. And in the story of Abraham and Sarah, you see Sarah is particularly loud, and Abraham goes along with it. But you could see before that, in stories where Abraham was more the coward and he would be loud and Sarah went along with him. And then you can see other stories in and Sarah's, Sarah's life where they showed tremendous trust and tremendous faith. But through their faith development for Abraham and Sarah, eventually Abraham comes to a place where God says, okay, now Isaac is full grown. Take your boy and sacrifice him. A bigger request than he has ever made in all the times leading up to it. But God had taught Abraham through some of the failings, some of the times of trust, that eventually Abraham gets to this place where it says in Hebrews 11, looking back on this story, Abraham's like, I'll do it because I believe that God can even raise the dead, which is amazing because God never had until that point. But eventually, Abraham's faith grew to that point. One of the things I believe about spiritual formation, God's life being formed inside of us, is that it's slow and it's downward. My favorite image of it is that a screw going into a piece of wood. We are the screw. The piece of wood is God himself. And we eventually, more and more, rotate and go deeper in. Now in my life and yours, we face the same seasons the same say, man, I've been in these insecurities before. Oh, I hit some of these sufferings before and we face some of the similar things of our life. Some of the things I journaled about when I was 16, I still face those. But by God's grace, a little bit deeper in, a little bit closer. When I do pre-marriage counseling and we're able to identify, okay, this is an issue, we say, you know what? This will probably be an issue if you're both 80 together because this is identifying an issue, but the goal is to face this issue, this, this cross as you carry, these things that you're facing, a little bit deeper in, into the love of God. Resiliency comes through suffering. It does. Resiliency, if you have suffered, and you have suffered with Christ, the next time it doesn't free you from suffering, and the suffering looks a lot the same as it did before, but the treasure of, of Christian suffering is that each time we go through it, we know a little bit more. He is love. This will end. In Him, all is well. Those are some of the treasures, and um, many of you uh, are, are going through different times of suffering and have shared your journey. Such, such an honor for me. In fact, I, I said this to someone last week, like, hey, we're supposed to talk about the treasures of Christian suffering. All I want to do is put an open mic in that sanctuary and say, where has anyone seen God in suffering? Because that's a lot of those responses have come to me and, and, and then just sit down afterwards and say that, that is the treasure. Because in such a real way, you, you are the treasure of Christian suffering and you live it out better than we can quickly in a sermon. But many of you are, are walking alongside of people who are suffering, trying to make sense from the outside of someone going through a difficult time. And so I just wanted to share um, a few points on that as we go. So the partnership of Christian suffering. Number six, or 16, for those of you dealing with people in pain, don't be little pain. This is exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. You know why? Because Abraham and Sarah, they knew pain. They knew barrenness. They knew what it was like to leave like, like their whole nation, their family, and to tell everyone at every party they ever went to, well, God's gonna give us, there's a blessing. You just need to believe it. And then people will watch Sarah turn 30 and 40 and 50 and 60. And, and they knew that the pain of those days and never having a child, they knew pain. But what can happen when we know our version of pain is we become hurt people who hurt other people and we don't see that Hagar can be hurt too. It's very easy when people share our type of pain to be like, hey, I get that, right? It is for me. But when they have a different type, for me, sometimes I'm jealous. I was talking to somebody, one of the pastors this week, he's like, oh man, I just wish I had a different cross. And I'm like, dude, I've wished I've had your cross. Guess what? They're both pretty rough. <laughs> but um, what we can do is belittle pain if we're not careful. This is something that Jesus did not do. Christ's pain identify identifies him with us, not preoccupies him with himself. Dane Ortlund said this, the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the falseness in the world about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Spurgeon said it this way, especially judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Also no ungenerous suspicions of the one afflicted, The poor and the despondent do not hastily say they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. Ask not, why are they so nervous and so absurdly fearful? No, I beseech you, remember you understand not your fellow man. 17, because suffering is unique, loving someone uh, is always a journey into complexity this is the problem with suffering, is we want it to be simple, and it's just not. It's like, hey, tell me, tell me about your suffering. How long do you have? Because it's complicated, and it, and it ties into relational, and it ties into to physical, and it ties into emotional, and when we go through suffering, it inevitably is something that's so confusing and complex, and if we think we have all the right answers, we're probably at the most dangerous we could be. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, here's here's the deal. Where'd it go? It's not on that one. Okay, over here. I can't reach that. (laughs) We urge you brothers, admonish the idle. That's right. That's what we do with those who are idle. Encourage the faint hearted, when we're talking about spiritual abuse and where we can cause great harm is when we mix these up. We admonish the fainthearted or instead of helping the weak, we're admonishing them. And I I know sometimes for a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And we're like, well, there's a problem and God doesn't like problems. Let's just, you know, you should confess or whatever you need to do. And we, We jump into suffering with simple answers when we realize, you know what? This might not be a sin issue. You know what? God hasn't answered this question yet. Maybe you shouldn't try either. To embrace complexity, Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And lastly, just, I'll just say this, curiosity and compassion make far better friends than lessons to those who suffer. This word curiosity, I've shared, I've struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder and most of my friends don't. So if you struggle with obsessive compulsive or I need friends, so, but most of my friends do not. Um, but curiosity means the most to me. There are some people who are like, hey, I read this article and I saw this here and you know, if the obsessed compulsive, and this is actually this, or they see a therapist for two weeks and they're like, my therapist one time said this about obsessive compulsive. Have you applied this to your life? And I'm like, thank you so much. Let's not talk for a while, you know, but my friends who've come and said, hey, I have no idea what that's like. Honestly, it sounds a little weird to me. What's that like? And I get to tell them. That means the world to me. People don't have to identify with my type of suffering, but they probably shouldn't act like they're an expert in it. We're not experts in each other's type of pain. We need to listen. Ask honest questions. Curiosity and compassion are far better friends then lessons to the sufferer. 18, we're almost there. What changes someone's life during suffering is love. And if you love someone who suffers, and I mean this phrasing intentionally, you become and you are the power of God. 1 Corinthians 13 collects all kinds of virtues, all kinds of things of the faith and says, but let me tell you what matters the most. It's love. Love for someone who suffers. My wife is a a therapist and we were talking and she said, you know what, Ben? Like uh, psychology has helped us so much to identify problems, to categorize problems, to help explain complexity of pain. But she said, you look even at modern psychology theories, what changes a person's life is love. It's relational. That's what creates change in a life. It can be a love from others. It can be learning to, in a godly way, love yourself. And she said this to me and she said, but there's no love like the love of God. If you can become and love someone and become a part of God's love fitting into the life of a sufferer, you are the power of God in a life. And you think, if I only had the right things to say, as soon as you think that, say this. Probably shouldn't say it, right? I don't know how many times I've heard people say, like, I I don't know what to say, and I just want to say thank you. Just don't say it. Just be present. Be a non-anxious presence in suffering. You won't solve the suffering, but guess what? If God hasn't solved it, you're probably not going to either. Just be there. And your non-anxious presence, Jane Davison Hunter wrote a book on how to change the world. How do you change the world? How do you actually create change? And his whole premise is this, by faithful presence. When you love someone who suffers, you are the power of God. Lastly, oh wait, this is a great quote. Eugene Peterson said this, spiritual formation not only should not be, but also cannot be professionalized. It takes place essentially in the company of friends and peers. And if Jesus had his whole story, Go into the hands of the church through the Holy Spirit, which is his miracle. He didn't just say, hey, pastors, counselors, you guys have to figure it all out. He gives the power to all of us to be the very agents of his formation of love into a sufferer's life. The end of Christian suffering. Oh man, I've looked forward to seeing those words. A couple of things. As we close, Christian suffering normally has relief this side of heaven. Nowhere in Scripture do I believe that is fully promised. It is often spoken of and it is the normative thing that happens to sufferers in Scripture. I don't think we can say, hey, we know that this suffering will always be lifted, but suffering normally finds relief. It normally has at least somewhat of an exp- exp- expiration date that is not just eternal. It is normally here. Suffering is often, as we mentioned, the screw going into wood, something we go through cyclically. But I do not believe that misery is the normative state of a Christian. God will bring you through almost always on this side of heaven. But lastly, Number 20, even if it is in heaven or not till heaven, suffering is a very brief part of the Christian experience. Of following Christ, being with Christ, even if the suffering lasts far longer, even if it's not as it normally is, relieved on this side of heaven, healing is promised, ultimate healing. In paradise forever, in union with Him forever and in those days and in those years and in those decades and in those centuries and in those millennium will be able to look back and say you know what that suffering was so painful but it was brief compared to what we get to have i'm going to do something that literally could not be more narcissistic I'm going to read a part of my book to you. <laughs> um, I just want to tell you what happened as I, as I wrote, and I'm just going to conclude with a couple of paragraphs. Um, I started writing about uh, Spurgeon, Nowen, Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis, and I dove somewhat deep into their stories and understanding a lot of their pain, and, and it is dark. It is dark is really intense. It was more intense than I was ready for. I thought, hey, this is going to be an easier chapter when I did this, and then it became my longest and most difficult chapter because of the amount of sorrow that they had in their own lives, these heroes of the faith. And and when I did this, we were in Colombia, we were seeing a lot of poverty. There was and there was a lot of things that we were Facing that just felt really painful, and and as I was writing this book on Christian suffering, I just became overtaken. Is the way it felt on three levels. The first, I felt this personal sense of fear. I, I don't want to suffer. I, I, I'm use the words of C.S. Lewis. I'm a coward when it comes to suffering. I don't want to suffer the extent of some of the worst times that I have had in my past. I never want that again. I also felt, as I was reading of these saints, a sense of like injustice. Of like, how come they had to suffer? Like these people led us to the foot of feet of God, told us about His love. Why did they have to go to hell to find it? And then, third, as I got like universal and pretty dark, I like just felt the sufferings of other people. Part of that was being in Colombia and seeing some real poverty and hearing about some dark, dark things, part of that is just being a pastor of you all and, and having walked through some different stories. I just don't want anymore. I don't have the stomach for it. It's too much. And in that moment, like, I almost didn't want hope. As I was writing this chapter, like, you know what? Hope is too painful. Let's just turn off all the lights and call it a day. But what held me through was this image of heaven. And I'm just going to read you this little bit as we conclude. I felt close to Spurgeon Lewis, Mother Teresa, now, and I felt close to those who know the suffering that they knew. I felt close to you, the fellowship of the tormented. I do mean this. You are heroes of mine. We make up a hobbled army at times we feel like we're just like every other person. At times we feel like we are blessed to know our way of Christ even in the dark. At other times we are begging that Christ would take this cross from us. We know lots of times, but we keep going with plenty of limping, limping, second guessing, laughing at ourselves and crying when it is just too much. I want to end this chapter with a view of heaven. In that place, Spurgeon knows no more physical or mental torture. He no longer gazes into the abyss of the English Channel, clinging to his last bits of weathered hope. He now stares into the glory of Christ, eyes lit with joy and mirth. I think of Lewis, who's no longer reduced to the feelings of a coward in the face of his grief and anxiety. He doesn't have to wrestle with pain theologically or philosophically for himself or for us anymore. He's reunited with his wife. Mother Teresa knows unbroken fellowship with the Christ she married on earth. There are no more lessons to be taught or learned by the teacher of silence. She's fully with him and he with her. I think about you and me who are not yet there yet. Our questions are not resolved. Our uncertainties remain uncertain. Our timeline of the seasons of pain do not have an end date that we can see. We travel this world of faith and suffering on its precarious path and don't always know how much more we can take. I cannot wait for heaven with you. I can't wait to see what we will gain there and what we shall leave behind. I long to speak to you there of how he got us through the very times we thought were too deep, too wide, too long, and too high for us to endure. I long to hear how he showed us them and for forever that his love was deeper, wider, longer, and higher still. Dear weary traveler, you won't be weary long.